So tonight I want to talk about an aspect of experience that before I began meditation, I had no idea how painful this was. And then once I began meditating, uh, I was quite horrified to see the savageness, the um, relentlessness, the uh, sheer pain of this experience, and that is of the judging mind. It's an aspect of experience that during the course of a silent retreat, we find its voice arising very often. And just to say that if it's not arising for you now, don't, don't worry about it, it's okay. <laughs> we do get a temporary reprieve from it at times. And you know, this voice of the judging mind arises in so many different ways. We tend to judge our fellow yogis. We might judge them according to how they sit, how long they sit, how they walk, how long they walk, whether they have cups of tea in a day, whether, um, you know, and all of these judgments will be based on the ideas, beliefs, views that we have. You know, if we have been practicing maybe in the Mahasi tradition, we might really value slow walking. We see someone walking very slowly. Oh, good yogi. If we've been practicing with Sayadaw Utejaniya, it's like, what, that's person's problem. You know, they're moving so slow, well, lighten up. Or, you know, how long we sit. You know, if we've been doing concentration practice, you know, we might be sitting for very long periods of time and, um, and might really value that. Whereas if we've been practicing with Utejaniya, we see someone sitting a long time and we think, boy, they're attached to their concentration. You know, so, you know, and the forced refuge is great because we have so many different styles of practice happening here that it really makes it hard for the judging mind to find ground. You know, we don't really know how other people are measuring up. But, you know, we have this tendency we walk in a room and we just size everybody up according to these values, ideas that we have. We can find that the judging mind arises in relationship to ourselves. That we can be so judgmental of how we practice. You know, and what kinds of thoughts are arising in the mind. You know, sometimes the, the judging mind might take the form of our mother's voice, father's voice, you know, and they're just continually honest about what we're doing, how we're doing it. Um, or the, the, the judging mind in relationship to self can be around ideals that we have about how our practice should be. And, you know, this voice can be so lacerating, cruel. Or then, you know, we can also find the judging mind in how we imagine others are judging us. You know, so we might be sitting in the hall and we swallow and we are sure that everyone else is condemning us. We are the worst yogi. Or we're in the dining room and we drop our spoon. <gasps> oh my God. You know, everyone's just jumping on us and, you know, we're hopeless in their eyes. And, you know, it's all completely fabricated. And yet we really believe it in those moments. And the inner cringe is just excruciating. 
or we become very judgmental about the order of things, how things should be done, you know, how the office should be run, how the kitchen should be run, you know, how the teaching should be delivered, what kind of practices should be taught. And, you know, it's just this continual, you, you see something and the mind just, that shouldn't be that way. You know, I should speak to somebody about that. I have really good ideas. They should listen to me. You know, I really know something about this. And, you know, just become all inflated about how we think things should be. We can find even, you know, without even speaking our judgments that we're so attached to them that we start to get in arguments in our head when people disagree. You know, and this is all completely fabricated and really becomes a torment in the mind, really becomes a place of great suffering. And, you know, if we look in our lives that, you know, just through the course of a day in the world, how many times does the judging mind rear its head? Where, you know, we meet someone for the first time and there's just this quick evaluation. You know, and if it's a pleasant meeting, oh, then we want to get to know the person. If there's something unpleasant, maybe we don't like the posture of the person. We don't like the way they're dressed. You know, that there's just some judgment that comes in immediately and, you know, can become very dismissive. And I know in my own life I've been really grateful for, you know, living in spiritual community where you don't choose the people whom are in that community. And so, you know, there can be people whom you would meet and have that judgment dismiss. And then you're forced to work with them, to live with them. And you discover those judgments were way off base, had nothing to do with who that person really is. And, you know, you just see the beauty in them. But so many times we will live as if that first impression is true. It cuts us off. Similarly, we judge around events, what we see people doing. And, you know, can have very harsh judgments and really have no idea what's going on with that person. On retreat, you know, you might see somebody who looks like they're drinking a lot of cups of tea. And you think, oh, my God, do they ever do any practice? And yet they could be working with really deep pain. And, you know, the cup of tea allows them to be there with it. But, you know, in our heads, it's just this evaluation of them. These judgments are not the faculty of wise discernment. And wise discernment is something that we do need in our lives. We do need to make value judgments. But when we make these value judgments where there's wise discernment, they're not colored by greed, aversion, and delusion. I'll speak a little bit more about those later on. But the the judging mind, as it appears uh, in this harsh, critical way, can come out of conditioning that we've had. 
And, it, you know, it can be conditioning that comes based upon fears, ideals. It can be things that we have learned from our parents or peers. And, you know, I think this is one of the reasons why the Buddha gave such an emphasis to spiritual friendship and its value. Because, you know, if we're hanging around with people who are abusive to others, are, you know, continually criticizing, putting down others, it's really easy to do the same in our own minds. You know, it just becomes um, uh, easier to do that than to stand up in the face of that energy. And, you know, we find that we give a lot of credence to these views, beliefs, opinions, and that they actually have so little bearing on the way things actually are. And we find that these judgments really feed into this continually comparing self to others, that, you know, we, we decide whether we're a good person in comparison to others, or we decide that we're really unworthy, um, no good, in comparison to others. And these subtle or sometimes gross judgments lead to the solidification of the sense of I am, which, as we explore through our practice, we really begin to see how this I am is a painful place to be, that there's some form of identification, attachment, clinging, that there comes a struggle around the protecting of this I am, the holding on to what defines the I am. So this pain of the judging mind becomes much more apparent as we practice, as we begin to see that, you know, in a moment where we're harshly judging someone else and it might lead to an inflated sense of I am how this is painful this is separate we begin to see how all these cruel thoughts of being inferior not good enough are painful the Buddha once said to Ananda his attendant You should not be a hasty critic of people. You should not hastily pass judgment on people. Who passes judgment on people harms themselves. And this is what we get to see as we pay attention to this judging mind. That really, it creates suffering in our mind stream. I once really saw the difference when I went on a five-week self-retreat where during that five weeks, I didn't see another person. And I just felt the relief of not continually 
judging others. It, it was like, whoa, there's really something different about this. Of course, there was still plenty of time to judge myself, but um, there was the scene, you know, what it's like to not be defining self in comparison to others. But as it is, we don't live in isolation. You know, to get rid of this judging mind, you know, it's not as if we're going to go and live in a cave for the rest of our lives. That this is something that we really learn, need to learn how to have a wise relationship. So a wise relationship meaning that there isn't suffering with. <clears throat> Just to give you some idea of how Buddhist teachings really view the brutality of the judging mind. I want to share something that comes from the Abhidhamma, which is the Buddhist analysis of the mind and its mental processes. And in the Abhidhamma, it's said that judgment is a form of conceit, a form of I am. And it's described as an imagination not based in reality. And this, what I'm going to read, comes from Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation of the Abhidhamma uh, and, and commentary. Um, so it says, Conceit has the characteristic of haughtiness. Its function is self-exaltation. It is manifested as a saving glory. Its proximate cause is greed dissociated from views. It should be regarded as madness. A lot of that's not a surprise. The haughty voice of judgment, that's easy to see. The self-exaltated feeling, exaltation, that we, we can relate to that. Self being manufactured glory, but related to as madness. When I read that, it really struck me. You know, I just thought of the word madness and how I often relate to it. You know, if I'm around somebody who is suffering from schizophrenia or psychosis, it's really easy to feel the suffering that's there. You know, and compassion just naturally comes. You know, to see how when we're lost in delusion, how painful it is. And then to see that conceit, the judging mind, is also to be regarded as madness. You know, that the delusion is so strong there that it's really losing touch with the truth of the way things are. And I think it's really good to know that judgment in the form of conceit, the conceit of I am, does not fully disappear until arahantship or the mind is completely free. And so 
to me that says, well, I could be here for a little while. So <laughs> it just brings home the necessity to not be caught in, you know, what is often a react, reactive relationship to. I don't know how it's been for you, but there's been times when, you know, during practice and just seeing the relentlessness, you know, the you know, mind just going firing all the time on these quirky little judgments and then just the reactivity and seeing that. Um, you know, to just realize, okay, there's something to be seen here. There's something to be understood. There's something to be looked at and investigated. When we realize this, I think it really helps us to be less harsh when it arises and to really begin to see it as a habit of mind. You know, it's been conditioned. It's conditioned through all of these beliefs, views, ideas that we can't help but pick up, you know, as small children. We learn from those around us. And unfortunately, we also learn places where they're not free. You know, and it's not that that's passed on um, uh, with someone wanting to harm us in some way. It's really, you know, just because we so often live with ignorance and we can't help but do that. And so, you know, it's just deconditioning the mind to see, oh, this isn't really the truth of the way things are. In Buddhist teachings, it's talked about there being three different forms of conceit. The first form being that of being superior, where we compare ourselves to others and, hmm, we're doing pretty good. We're a good yogi. Yeah, I can sit longer than others. I can walk slower. You know, where we have some value judgment and, you know, sitting in the hall, we see somebody move. Ha! Sign of weakness. I can sit through pain. You know, we can tend to glorify. We can get, you know, uh, it's nice to feel, oh, I'm a good yogi. <laughs> it's, or it's nice for a period of time until dukkha hits and then we get humbled. Uh, so this is e- where it's easy to see arrogance, pride, haughtiness, loftiness, this inflated sense of self. I'd like to uh, share some teachings from a Tibetan teacher named Patro Rinpoche. It's from his book, Words of My Perfect Teacher. It says, of all the negative emotions, pride and jealousy are the most difficult to recognize. Therefore, Examine your mind minutely. Any feeling that there is something even the least bit special about your own qualities, whether worldly or spiritual, will make you blind to your own faults and unaware of others' good qualities. So renounce pride. I think it's good to think of this in terms of renunciation, in terms of renouncing pride, in terms of 
renouncing this feeling of being an exalted self. Which means when it arises in our experience, we don't feed it. You know, it's not that we're going to stop it from arising when, you know, it's arising due to um, causes and conditions, seeds that were planted in the past, it arises. But we don't have to get on the wagon. You know, we don't have to, you know, wave that banner, here I am, I'm great. You know, we can, and if we do, we can start to pay attention to what that feels like. You know how, yeah, in one moment we're feeling really good about ourselves, then suddenly, you know, we're having to build up that self, so that's the way everybody else continues to see us. And how that, that becomes exhausting. And that life really has a way of knocking us off those pedestals. You know, that, you know, it's just not um, sustainable. So I remember one time when I was on retreat and, uh, you know, I was getting these little judgmental thoughts and, and, and that there was coming that harsh critic and seeing the judgmental thoughts. And then so I would have these thoughts and then I, would, I followed it by the thought, just another place to be right. You know, it was a way that helped to bring balance to the scene of this, you know, and to hold lightly this tendency. I'd like to share a teaching story that I love around the, uh, you know, this inflated sense of self. There was once a very proud, aggressive lion. He thought he was the most powerful beast in the world. And one day a mouse came and told him teasingly, You know, there's another lion much stronger and more fierce than you are. And the lion immediately wanted to find his rival, thinking he would challenge him to a fight, would win, and would become renowned as the most ferocious lion in the land. And the lion asked the whereabouts of his foe, and the little mouse led him to a very deep well. He pointed down and he said, The other lion is down there. Just look. And the lion looked into the well, and sure enough, he saw the face of a lion glaring up at him from the bottom. And the lion roared at it, and the other echoed in reply. And the first lion became so angry that he leapt straight down into the faces of his enemy and drowned. And this is what happens in our lives when we get fooled by that face, that sense of self, that, you know, it turns back on us. It isn't what it seems. You know, it becomes evident in the world around us. You know, when we see people really trying to bolster themselves up, to appear in a certain way. You know, sometimes we meet people who have a strong tendency to do this. And it just becomes, you feel the exhaustion of that. And you feel, you know, just how out of touch one can be.
The second form of conceit is that of being inferior, where we compare ourselves to others and fall short. We're not so good. You know, it's really easy to sit in this hall and to imagine that everyone around us is enlightened or nearly enlightened. And it's only us that is suffering. When I was in Burma one time, uh, the interviews there are a little bit more of a group process. You know, a number, maybe five people would be in the room at the same time. And it happened that the person in front of me was what I considered to be a very good yogi. In fact, an impeccable yogi. And, uh, And so she would be reporting and as I was listening to her, you know, it was, I could just feel this sense of inferiority coming in. You know, maybe prior to walking in that room, I felt really fine about what was happening in my practice. But listening to what she was experiencing, what her insight was, you know, it's like suddenly, I was like, oh my God. You know, and then just kind of losing my voice in that process. We can even find this sense of inferiority, you know, within our own experience, where we might compare this retreat to our last retreat. And, you know, this this is just inferior. Or this sitting to our last sitting, and it's just not measuring up. Some of us experience this... um, sense of inferiority quite a lot. You know, it seems to be quite prevalent in our culture. And, you know, leads to feelings of great shame, worthlessness. Uh, we, We lose, you know, a lack of luster in our lives. We, you know, become bound by it in a fearful place. You know, afraid to really even do things because it's just going to prove that we're inferior. I remember really suffering from this as a child and, you know, just the fear of failure, you know, just that it would be evident, not wanting to do things because of it. And it's very debilitating. Since I have been teaching, you know, I've just really seen how many of us share this and how painful it is. And, you know, so many times to me it's been evident where somebody can be really struggling with this. And I'm sitting there from a whole nother perspective and seeing just how beautiful, how unique, you know, how precious this being is. And just to watch, you know, this collapsing of energy, it's so painful. And then, you know, one time I was receiving teachings from uh, one of my Tibetan teachers, Minja Rinpoche, and he said something, just when he said it was again like this chord inside, he went, whoa. He said, you know, he's talking about this preciousness of having this human birth. And he said, it is inappropriate to disparage ourselves and put ourselves down. 
that we all have within us this awakened potential. And, you know, I, I heard it like, whoa, you know, this is inappropriate to keep feeding this habit. Now, again, here, we can't stop it from arising. You know, it's a habit of mind. It's conditioned. And, you know, if we've had the conditioning that says you're worthless, it's going to arise. But don't believe it. Don't buy it. Don't pick it up. It's not the truth. Now, and this is where the power of awareness, just see it. It's transitory. It's a visitor. It's conditioned. Don't give it power. Let it go. And then, like everything else, it goes its own way. The third form of conceit is that of being equal to, being equal to another. When I first heard this, I went, what? Equanimity, you know, aren't we really practicing, do you know, with this sense of equality? Isn't this, um, isn't this what we're looking for? And here we have, you know, the Buddhist teaching saying it's a form of conceit. But so, you know, it really caused me to stop and reflect on this. And, you know, on one level, seeing that it's still standing in that place of separation, you know, still defining self according to comparing to another, even though it's equal to. And then, as I looked further, I started to get a sense of some of the other forms of suffering that come because of comparing and being equal to. And this was actually at one point in my life quite evident. Uh, I was living in Australia. And Australia has what's called the tall poppy syndrome. And in speaking about this, it's helpful to know that Australia was largely settled by English peasants and convicts. And so these people moved to Australia, were living there, some, you know, not choosing to, but ending up there, were living there, and in their lives, they had been looked down on a lot. And so they'd had enough of this. And what started to happen is that in the culture there, as soon as someone would start to arise in a certain way out of, you know, this field of flowers and would get taller, bigger, different, then the others would just cut it down. And, you know, it doesn't allow people, doesn't support people in strengthening their uniqueness, their differences. Some of us may have strong philosophical ideas around equality. And this, too, might not allow for differences. There can be natural hierarchies that are based in function rather than worth. So, like if we look at a tree, a tree has roots 
that are underground. It has trunk. It has branches. It has leaves. And, you know, the leaves catch the full sunlight. You know, are the roots jealous of the leaves because they get the sunlight and it doesn't? Whereas really, if the roots were above ground, they'd probably shrivel up and die. You know, that there's just a function that is there. And so it's been interesting for me because a lot of my adult life has been spent living in spiritual community. And I've, I have really seen how we can get confused around our value judgments that we might put on different functions. And if we're holding equality as being equal, it can lead to a lot of suffering. I mean, just in a simple way, uh, being here on retreat, you know, you're here as yogis. And staff is here as staff. And teachers are here as teachers. And if we just, you know, get that this is our, your chance to be a yogi, your chance to really just be quiet and look within. It's staff's opportunity to practice in a more active way. And um, it's really helpful if, as yogis, we just be yogis and we don't try to become staff. Or, you know, it's helpful if being here on retreat, you know, we don't suddenly start trying to instruct our fellow yogis. You know, that there's just a function that helps things to work in harmony. And, you know, like living in a retreat center, um, that many of the staff here have different roles that, uh, uh, you know, and so say the building springs a leak. If we give everybody, the receptionist, the cook, uh, the carpenter, an equal say in what should be done, you know, it just doesn't make sense because the carpenter has the skill, the know-how to alter the, the situation. So, you know, it's just a round function. It's not saying the carpenter's better than the cook. It's just a function. I've also seen living in com- community that, uh, and this, you know, we see happen in our workplaces too, that we can start measuring up who's getting the goodies, you know, who's scoring the points, and, you know, wanting to make sure that no one person is scoring any more points than anyone else, that it should all be equal. And so, you know, we can see that, that uh, there can be great suffering that comes if we're holding this form of conceit. So these three forms of conceit, being superior to others, being inferior, or being equal to. And with all of them, in looking at them, we begin to see how I am, or the comparing mind, is at the center of them. As I mentioned, in our lives, we do need to make value judgments. You know, just in the simple things we do during the course of a day in our lives. You know, to whether or not we buy 
organic food or to whether or not we get paper or plastic. Uh, We make decisions about our relationships, our careers, our homes. And so we really need to learn how to make these decisions where the sense of self is not tied up with this. So just an example of this. Maybe we're going out to buy a new house, and we don't have a lot of money. And all we can afford is a very small, humble dwelling, which might give us the freedom to live without having to make huge mortgage payments. But that is painful if we're thinking that that small little house on the back blocks, you know, shows that we don't have much money, that we haven't been hugely successful on the financial realm in life. You know, it becomes a place of suffering. Many times our careers will be a source of suffering. You know, in one community I was living in, um, the practice was really based in the work. You know, it was karma yoga. And that, that um, I found for myself that the sense of self got really tied up in that. And as a result, I was doing way more than my physical body could handle. And it was completely exhausting. And I actually ended up getting very sick from it. But, you know, it came where the sense of self got mixed in with some of these decisions that we make. We can find that, you know, just in little ways on retreat, you might be, you know, really getting tied up in a knot on on some aspect of practice. And you speak to a teacher, and they recommend that you do metta practice for a while. And you think, oh, metta is a lesser practice. You know, I'm here for the wisdom, the real thing. And, you know, you take it as meaning that, you know, you're, you're no good, you're a failure, when that's not the truth at all. Just at different times, different things are needed, different practices, different tools. We can see it when we've been sitting and, you know, have the idea that we should be able to sit with whatever pain comes. And then we shift the posture because the pain is so strong, just in a moment of not being able to stand it. And then thinking, oh, you wimp. But, you know, it's much more important just to be mindful of the whole process. So really looking to how we can have a wise relationship with the judging mind, where we can really meet it when it arises. And a description that I like about meeting experience is being like the doorman in a hotel, where we greet whoever comes, but we don't follow after all of the guests. So we don't follow after the judging mind. And, you know, as it arises to notice how is the mind relating, is there resistance, is there aversion, not wanting, can it be okay? 
Can this just be another appearance in the mind? If we get caught in judging mind, if we get caught in feeling superior or inferior or equal to, how does it feel? What are the thoughts like in the mind? What's the effect of the thoughts? What happens when we see it just from the perspective of awareness? Watch the desire to believe this judging mind. You know, whether it's to be superior, you know, self-righteous, whether it's to be inferior. It's amazed me how comfortable it can get to be inferior, to live more in a state of resignation. You know, because then you're just not going to even rise out of that. So there's no sense of collapsing more. When we're feeling good, inflated sense of self, what happens then? How do we move into protecting that image, that view, whether it's in with our own mind or how we think others are perceiving us? How long does that feeling of goodness last? Can we see its impermanence? Can we see its changing nature? Noticing the difference between I am judging to just judging. This is another thing that, you know, one time when I was, had a lot of the judging mind and it had this very queenly overtone. And then, the, you know, there was a scene, a, this disparaging, um, cutting aspect. Uh, when I would note it, I would put just in front of it to remind myself that it was just judging, nothing more. It's just the judging mind. And the just helped to bring that balance in. Sometimes there'll be the backlash, the judging of the judger. Feel the pain of it. Feel the savageness. I mean, if we really feel it, it's like, wow, our hearts can't help but open with compassion. Just feeling the brutality, the torment. To know that it's just because of delusion, not seeing clearly. It's not the truth. I'd like to speak about some common areas where in our lives the judging mind arises. And these are in relationship to what's called the eight worldly conditions. What we run into is uh, 
being a human being and living in relationship with the world. So these eightly, eight worldly conditions, the first two being that of pleasure and pain. And, you know, when pleasure is strong, there's a tendency to think, oh, I'm doing good. You know, if somebody comes up to you and asks how you are and you say you're doing good, it's quite likely that at that time there's a predominance of pleasant experience. And then pain comes along. And then we tend to think, oh, I'm not so good. Um, you know, we can see this in our practice. Pleasure's here, it's easy, it's going great. Uh, oh, I'm a, I'm a good yogi. And then something, pain becomes predominant. Some torment in the mind we become identified with. Oh, I'm a bad yogi. You know, I'm not doing so good. I did something wrong. This shouldn't be happening. So we place a value of self in relationship to how much pleasant or unpleasant there is. And yet, you know, really, the truth of having a body in itself is that it's very likely that there will be, at times, unpleasant sensation. And, you know, at times, extremely unpleasant. It just comes with the package of having a body. And so to keep defining self in relationship to pleasure and pain becomes really painful. Another area of judgment tends to be around gain and loss. And in times of gain, great abundance, you know, again, things are really good. This is great. You know, uh, how wonderful. And then loss comes and we feel crushed. You know, that we've just been devastated by this loss. And... You know, practice is really good for helping us to see that there's just this continual changing. And that, you know, many times when things change, there can be a strong sense of loss. But we don't have to define self by it. It's just the way things are. It's the way conditioned reality is. And that, you know, many, you know, everything is constantly going we begin to see, you know, this is just the ebb and flow of life. There's, there's times of great abundance and there's tr- times of scarcity. And we don't need to define self by it. The next two of the eight worldly conditions uh, is that of praise and blame. And you know, if we, in our lives, in our work, uh, what we do, if we're exposed to a lot of praise and blame, it's, it's really easy to see how if we get identified here, it's going to be painful. You know, someone comes along and praises us. Maybe we're doing a great job. It's, you're doing wonderful. You're great. And then, uh, you know, we feel really good. And then meet someone who's just blames us. It's like, you shouldn't be doing that. You, you know, that was wrong. And then we just get shattered. You know, it's again, it's so fragile, painful. 
And uh, certainly as a teacher, I've been exposed to this a lot. You know, the same Dharma talk you give, you know, one yogi will come in and just, oh, it was brilliant, it helped me so much. And the very next yogi can be, how can you say that? How can you sit there and you've ruined it for me? And it's just, it's, um, if I stay identified, it's painful. (laughs) And so I look to the Buddha in how he's so exemplified, you know, not having a sense of self uh, tied up in it. And there was there's a story that I just love, um, uh, because the Buddha really did take a lot of flack from people. You know, I always imagine that you would hear the words of the Buddha, and you know, it would just go straight to your heart and. You know, you, if you, even if you um, only just recognized they were words of wisdom, if you didn't understand them in your own mind. But that wasn't the case for everyone. And some people just really were riled up by him. And so there's a story about how one day there was a man that um, was very angry with him and was really trying to get the Buddha going. And so the Buddha was very patient with him and just let him rant and rave. And then finally the man finished. And so the Buddha just said to him, do people ever come to visit you in your home? And the man was, you know, taken a bit off guard and he said, yes. (laughs) And, And then the Buddha asked him, and do you ever feed your guests? And so the man responded, yes. And so the Buddha asked him, what if they refuse to accept the food? Who would the food belong to then. And so the man responded, of course, it would still belong to him. And so the Buddha very calmly and kindly said, in the same way, I do not accept your insults. They remain with you. And, you know, in that way, because he wasn't taking on, wasn't identifying with, it became a great teaching for this man. It didn't have anywhere to land with the Buddha. You know, and that's where we see praise and blame can really land with the I am. And then the last of the eight worldly conditions being that of fame and disrepute. And it may some of us maybe are famous in our lives and what we do, or maybe some of us have fallen into deep disrepute. But if we don't know it so much in our own experience, just read the entertainment section in the papers. You know, just look at what happens in Hollywood. And you know, if somebody one day is so famous, is in great glory, and the next day is just slammed, for something. Or we see it in the world of politics that, you know, you can be on the upswing and then boom, you're down. And if that's your sense of self-worth, it's excruciating. You know, we see that in any way of relating, you know, defining self in relationship to pleasure and pain, praise and blame, gain and loss, 
fame and disrepute. It's painful. But this is really where we can see the pain of I am. You know, good, good things to be aware of and see whether we're picking up the bait or whether just seeing praise. Praise is here. Blame is here. Pleasure, pain, gain, loss, fame, disrepute. How's the mind relating? <laughs> I'd like to just uh, share a story that comes um, from Su Dongpo, who was a famous Buddhist poet. And this is called The Eight Winds Cannot Move Me. Uh, so Song Dongpo of the Song Dynasty was assigned to an official post at which was situated at the north shore of the Yangtze River. And across the river on the southern shore was the Golden Mountain Temple, where there was a Chan master, Foyin. One day, Su Dongpo, felt, feeling quite advanced in his practice, wrote a poem and asked his attendant to send it over to the master for verification. And the poem went as follows. Bowing, my, bowing with my highest respect... <clears throat> Excuse me, to the Deva of Devas, the Buddha, whose fine light illuminates the whole universe, the eight winds cannot move me, for I am sitting upright on the golden purple lotus blossom, his spiritual attainment. And after receiving the poem from the attendant and reading it, the master picked up his brush and wrote down one word as his comment. And the attendant took it back, and Su Dongpo was expecting words of praise from the master. He quickly opened it and read it. However, on that page, nothing was written except the word fart, um, which is P in Chinese, and it means utter nonsense. Upon seeing such an insult, Su Dongpo was ablaze with the fire of anger. Immediately, he boarded a boat and crossed the Yangtze River to argue with the master. Before the boat even pulled onto the shore, the Chan master was already standing there, waiting for Su Dongpo. Upon seeing him, Su Dongpo said, Chan master, we are such intimate Dharma friends. It is fine that you do not compliment my practice or my poem, but how can you insult me like this? Innocently, as if nothing had happened, the Chan master asked, How have I insulted you? And without saying another word, Su Dongpo simply showed the word fart to him. Laughing wholeheartedly, the Chan master said, Oh, didn't you say that the eight winds cannot move you? How come you are sent across the river with just a fart? <laughs> Hearing that, Foyin said, Sudangpo was extremely embarrassed. <laughs> May we not be embarrassed by the eight winds. <laughs> so... Exploration of the judging mind. 
from the really gross forms of it, you know, the inferiority, the superiority, to the very subtle sense of I am. Seeing the suffering that comes when we identify with it. This is really a a place that we can break down our barriers of separateness and to really begin to see the world, beings, in all their diverse, unique ways, where we can really begin to see the awakened mind in each and every one of us. Finding a wise relationship where we do not suffer. I'd like to just close tonight with another Zen poem. This is from Kenrin Kushi from the 17th century. The morning glory which blooms for an hour differs not at heart from the giant pine which lives for a thousand years. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings find freedom from the torment of the judging mind. So closing with the reflections on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.